0: Alright, well, what I'd like you to do is, if you have a Bible with you, or a way to access the Bible, even if it is on your phone, uh, please turn to Job 28, verse 9. I want to do just a short interpretive exercise together that gets us into the teaching today. Job 28, beginning of verse 9, and it's Job speaking. And Job says, Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. So what is Job talking about in those verses? What is he describing? Mining. Mining. Yeah, he's talking about how man is able to move rock, move earth, and find gold and precious stones and and really important things in the soil. Man is very good at that. He's an incredible miner. Uh, He can overturn mountains by the roots, he can cut channels, and he can see every precious thing. And uh, everything that's hidden, he can bring out into the light. It's amazing what man can do as far as mining goes. But then he goes on in the next verse. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. So, as good as man is at uncovering gold and precious stones from the earth, he is not a good miner for wisdom. That's what Job's saying. Man is not a good miner for wisdom. And why not? it's because he doesn't know its worth. In verse 13, man does not know the worth of wisdom. He knows the worth of gold and silver and onyx and topaz, but he doesn't know the value of wisdom, and so he doesn't earnestly go searching for it. And for this month and probably for the next month too, um, I wanna talk about knowing the worth of wisdom. That's gonna be kind of the main thing that I wanna talk about these next two months. Knowing the worth of wisdom and how we can become expert miners for wisdom. In, uh, in 1992, the US Department of Agriculture produced a food pyramid to recommend the, the optimal numbers of kinds of food, servings to be eaten each day from the basic food groups. So you might remember this this food pyramid. <coughs> Uh, layer one, you have kind of bread and, and cereal and uh, rice and pasta, that's this group. And the closer to the bottom, the more you're supposed to eat more of. You're supposed to have your most servings in this category, the way this was drawn up. And then you have fruit and vegetables here. Uh, I'm sorry, you have fruit in this side and you have vegetables over here. You have your kind of your meat and your poultry. And you have eggs and things like that up here. And as you're going toward the top, you're supposed to have less of each. And then up here, you have uh, oils and sweets. And at the top of the pyramid, it says, use sparingly. Okay, So you're not supposed to have very much of what's up top here. And so the lower down, the more you should eat, the higher up, the less you should eat. Well, a couple of years ago, a, a Christian writer named Brett McCracken took this idea, and he came up with what he called the Wisdom Pyramid. And he wrote a book called The Wisdom Pyramid. Be very careful. The Wisdom Pyramid, and the subtitle is Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. And I'm not necessarily recommending that y'all go out and get the book. I'm, I'm mostly taking his concept and developing it for our purposes. I like the concept. And so thinking about what does it mean to live in a post-truth world. It, it's the, the dissonance there. It's like, well, what, how do you live in post-truth? I mean, truth exists. There's nothing beyond that. Well, what I think post-truth means is that something can be true. It can be objectively true. It can be a fact. But for some people, it just doesn't matter that it's true. And they're perfectly willing to conduct their lives as if that's not true. And you'll hear people talk about living by their truth instead. I'm going to live my truth. And that could be totally disconnected from reality. But it doesn't matter because they don't like what reality is. They don't like what the facts are. They don't like what truth is. And so they're going to live by their truth even though it is totally opposite of anything real. And so like the food pyramid, the wisdom pyramid has to do with intake. It has to do with intake of sources of wisdom. And so the lower down on the pyramid, the more we should be looking for wisdom. And then the higher up you go, the less so. Or at least it's not as important. It's not as integral. And I want to say, uh, I am not prescribing for us a whole new paradigm to take on. I'm not saying... You know, as I lay out these six layers, like this is how you have to do it, and you have to get the most here and, and less so there. That's not the point. The point is over these next two months for us to evaluate our intake in our life, our the consumption in our life, and are we really seeking wisdom in all that we take in in our lives? Does that make sense? So I'm not giving us a, a, a hard schematic to follow, but I want us to be thinking about sources of wisdom and whether we're becoming expert miners in acquiring wisdom. And so, kind of the implication is that the farther we go from from the base, the less we are taking in uh, sources of wisdom in the doses that we should to keep us grounded in truth. And, And the farther away that we go, or the less wisdom we take in, the more we can become disconnected from reality. And that's why McCracken explores three problems with information in our day and what he calls infotainment. So information, but also infotainment, because a lot of what passes for news and for information is really just, it's not important. You could never know it, and it wouldn't affect your life either way. So there are three things that he, he talks about, uh, and they're up here. And the first one is information gluttony. <clears throat> and he says, we're becoming intellectually obese because of just the amount of stuff that we take in on a daily basis, and so much of it that actually has little implication for how we live. Um, just think of all of the, the news, breaking news stories that come out about celebrities and, and about things even happening in other parts of the world that maybe it's okay to know about, but you can't do anything about it. And so in the scheme of things, it's maybe not as important to know about so we have an older an overindulgence of our inputs, and that's kind of information gluttony. The second thing he talks about is perpetual novelty, a, a desire to always know what is new and, and what has changed and kind of a constant refreshing mentality. and And Silicon Valley knows how to get us how to get us to constantly refresh and to constantly, you know, pick up our phone and check things, even though we just checked them not very long ago. Um, <clears throat> the, I, I listened to a podcast recently where it, it was talking about how Silicon Valley and Las Vegas work together, where Las Vegas is always trying to figure out how to get people to gamble more, and the slot machines are a primary way of doing this. So, how do they construct slot machines in a way that just? You know, keeps firing up that impulse to just keep plunking in the, the coins so that people can keep playing and and time just goes by and they keep spending and they're not really paying attention because they're hooked. And Silicon Valley is is in cahoots with Las Vegas trying to figure out how can we take that how can we take that learning and apply it to people so they stay on our apps and so that they keep using our products and, and they're not paying attention to where the time goes. And so that it feeds into that desire for perpetual novelty. And then the third one is a look within autonomy. And so in a sea of noise, it can be hard to find the signal, what's really important. And so it can be very easy to just stick to what we like, to not encounter other points of view, and just have most of our thinking occur in an echo chamber, and and just, just sticking to the people that we tend to agree with and not ever taking other points of view into consideration. And that's kind of the look within autonomy. I judge for myself you know, what's, uh, what is important. So those are the three things that uh, McCracken says that thinking about wisdom through the grid of a pyramid can, can counteract those tendencies. Okay. So Proverbs 4, verse 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, Get insight. So the starting place for learning anything at all about wisdom and how it works is to get wisdom. It's to take an active approach. To not try to receive wisdom is just from a passive standpoint, but to be determined to be the miner who will go out and and tear up mountains by the roots. And get into the flinty rock in order to acquire wisdom. It takes that kind of determination and that kind of mindset. The beginning of wisdom is this: get wisdom. You have to be active to get it. Okay, does that make sense? We good so far? All right. Let me give you the layers of the wisdom pyramid. So the bottom layer you could probably guess is the Bible. The second layer is the church. The third layer is nature. The fourth is books. The fifth is beauty. And the sixth is... I'm just going to put iPhone here. It's really digital content, but I didn't have much space, so I'm just going to put iPhone there. Those are the six layers, The way kind of the way he lays this out. And this, this month, I'm just going to talk about the Bible and the church, and then next month, talk about the other four. So um, before I get into these layers, I just want you to look at that and consider it and think about your own intake. What does your intake look like? You know, If you were to take these categories and rearrange them into what your wisdom pyramid looks like as it currently is, in your life, would it be something like this or would it be very different? I think if, I think if a lot of us were honest, uh, we would find that digital content tends to probably get most of, most of the base layer of what we take in on a daily basis. And so that's why, again, I'm not saying we've got to follow it exactly like this, and you've got to make sure that you're in nature more than you're in books and stuff like that. It's not the point. It's just for us to be thinking about what we take in, and in what kind of dosing do we take it in, and what do we give priority to, and, and what do we leave off. So I'm going to start uh, by talking about the Bible. And in one sense, you know, we might say, well, duh. Duh. You know, We would expect the Bible probably to be the base layer of what we take in for wisdom. Um, but is it your greatest source of nourishment? Is the Bible your greatest source of nourishment? Is it where you go to to be constantly refreshed about what life is like and how it's supposed to be and what God is doing in the earth? You know, even if you do a 15-minute a quiet time each day, which, which is a great practice, how does that then compare with all the other inputs that you have in your life uh, throughout the day and over the course of a week, a month, a year? And I'm not saying that we all need to make sure that we're reading our Bibles for three or four hours every day. That's, that's not the point. But I am saying that when it comes to sourcing wisdom, we often find that we have many other alternatives at the ready. <laughs> We have many other things that we can turn to other than the Bible. And, and that, that is something that's unique to our day and age that, that was, didn't exist in decades and centuries before. The Bible narrates us. The Bible tells us who we are in the world. And it tells us what we're doing here on planet Earth. And the Bible tells us that through our allegiance to Jesus and our confidence in Jesus, um, the creator of all that there is adopted us into his family and calls us his own. And the Bible tells us about what this creator purposes in the earth, what God is up to in the earth, and how we fit into that story. The Bible narrates us. And so if we're not close to that, then we lose our own story. And, and we lose our, our understanding of, of who we are and why we were created and why we're here in the first place. And this is important because uh, while the Bible narrates us, there are other stories out there too that narrate us. There are other stories that, that want to include us in their story and tell us who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. I'll give you just two examples of these counter stories that are out there. One is the autonomy narrative. Uh, Chad has described this before from um, the book, the Carl Truman book that we talked about last year, Expressive Individualism. And that's basically the you do you mentality. You don't belong to anybody, nobody has anything on you. Um, You do you. Nobody can tell you what to do. If you were born a man and you want to become a woman, well, don't let anybody stop you because that's your truth and and you live that out. And uh, don't let anybody interfere with it. So that's the autonomy narrative, and that's very strong in our culture. And it it certainly hits our younger people uh, more than it hits us older people. The other one is the consumer narrative. And the consumer narrative says that the good life consists of consuming everything from food to products to experiences. And that life is all about consumption and and what you can get for yourself, what you can acquire. And again, it may be something like an experience or it may be something that you keep in your house. But wanting and getting, that's where life really is, according to the consumer narrative. And and the main uh, value that you have is as a wanter and as a getter. And people look at you just through the lens of being a consumer. Um, Jamie Smith wrote a book called "You Are What You Love," and, and it, it's, it's a very simple statement, but it points to the fact that um, the things that we give our heart to are—that's what we become. And he's speaking at the Lewis House Lecture on Tuesday. If you're interested in going to that, uh, but it's, it's a very profound idea, and it. And it fits in with that idea of the consumer narrative, or at least it counters it. So, how do we make the Bible the base layer of our wisdom pyramids? So, I have kind of two tactics, and they're, they're nothing new. Um, we we've, we've said them you know many times before, but I want to visit them afresh. And the first tactic is to read the Bible in big chunks. Read it in really big chunks. I'm talking ten to 12, to 15 chapters in a sitting, the way you would read a novel. Now, the St. James Reader is, is helpful. It's a good tool, and it's helpful for accessing all parts of the Bible in different doses. But it is difficult to take in the structure of a book in smaller chunks. It's, it's, it's hard to grasp the whole of a book of the Bible when you're taking it in just maybe half a chapter at a time over several weeks. Um, you know, think about Samuel, the books of Samuel that we're in. Uh, if you were to just take half a chapter a week, I mean, that or half, half a chapter a day, that would take you several weeks to get through. And could you really grasp the whole of Samuel, its themes, its symbols, how it all works together, how it refers to earlier parts of Scripture? I think it'd be hard to do. Um, imagine watching a movie in 15-minute chunks over several days. So take... Uh, A really long movie by Christopher Nolan, like Inception, you know, the two and a half hour movie, and watching it in 15 minute chunks over several days. It would be really hard to grasp how one thing related to another. And you'd be, you know, on Saturday trying to recall something that you watched on Tuesday. It would be very hard to to do. Um, We watch movies typically in one sitting. And, and we do so as active participants, we're paying attention to character development, and we're noting symbols, and we're seeing how a conflict here may get resolved later. We begin to suspect how this conflict may get resolved later. Um, it's, it's deep storytelling, and we can take it all in at once because we're, we're viewing it in one sitting. And then if you go back and watch it again, then you pick up on things that you didn't get before. Anybody ever watched the, the show Lost when it was on? I think it ran 2006 to 2010, roughly. Okay, so some of us... One of the things that the creators did, because they really wanted to attract rabid fans, was they would introduce something, or they would bring something up in Season 5 that harkened all the way back to Season 2, like some symbol or some obscure character that appeared for two episodes in season two, all of a sudden is back in five, and the rabbit pants would be like, oh yeah, that's that guy, and he did this. You're talking a couple of years apart. That was also before the iPhone. It was also before a lot of the digital technology that we use now. They relied on deep storytelling and people being able to remember from far back things that happened. And a lot of times you don't find that kind of thing now. Um, And and it's where shows have to, they have to grasp, they have to grab your attention in the first 15 minutes or people are going to tune out, they're never going to watch the series. So the storytelling is a lot different. Biblical storytelling is a lot like the lost kind of storytelling, where something in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel will not only refer back to something in chapter 3, it will also refer back to something in Exodus, which referred back to something in Genesis. Or the structure of a chapter will mirror something from Deuteronomy. And the writers are expecting that you're going to be knowledgeable enough, having read these things over and over, to be able to pick up on that. So, what might open up for you if you read all of Paul's letter to the Romans in one sitting, rather than over a week or two weeks, Do you think you'd be able to better grasp his argument? So the, the structure of Romans, chapters 1 through 11 is one long, sustained argument, the whole thing. Start to finish, 1 through 11, it's one argument. If you read it all in one shot, you would be able to pick up on that better than if you took it piecemeal over several days. Or if you read the whole Gospel of Mark, or even Genesis in one sitting, probably take about... Three and a half hours to read all of Genesis. Now you might have to get up, and use the bathroom, and get coffee, whatever. But I'm talking about where then you're coming back and you're continuing on. Again, it's the way we read novels. You get into a really good novel, you lose track of time, and you're just, you're in it. Um, and that's, it's a good way to read the Bible, too. There's a place for taking a close up view of a verse or a group of verses. Um, but again, think of analyzing a particular scene from a movie without taking into account the whole rest of the movie and what builds around it. You could totally misread a scene by not considering the context of the whole. Then the second tactic is to memorize Scripture, and we talk about this a lot, but it's to memorize Scripture. If the Bible is our, our most reliable and enduring source of wisdom, then it in, it deserves to be committed to memory. We need to commit it to memory, and that way, when we need wisdom, the word is already embedded in us for the Spirit to to prompt in our minds and hearts, and for the for the Spirit to continually go to. You can speak a word to us from outside of ver- something that we haven't memorized or maybe something that we haven't read, but it seems like uh, the way that the Spirit likes to work is to take verses that we have internalized and, and pull those out for us. So read the Bible in big chunks and memorize it. Again, it's nothing new. It's nothing that we haven't said before. Um, but if we're going to restrict our information gluttony, if we're going to turn off, turn down the dial to always have to have something new, and if we're not only going to look within for wisdom, then we need to consider the default ways that we take in information, especially the way that we read the Bible, the way that we relate to the Bible. Does it make sense? Um, Aristotle said that if you have a warped board, if you have a board that's warped, it's not enough to simply put it into a jig that will bend it back to its original form. The way to get it back to its original form is you have to overcorrect it and bend it the opposite way. You have to you have to bend it twice as much for it to bounce back to its original form. When something is warped, you have to work twice as hard to reestablish what the norm should be. And so, most likely, to make the Bible the base part of our wisdom pyramid, will require reading and memorizing in ways that we haven't done before. Uh, it's not just picking up you know working a little harder here and there. It means you know, radically changing the way that we do it. And for some, that may be reading 10 to 12 chapters of the Bible and one saying, maybe you've never done that before. Well, that, that might be what it takes to be able to develop that as a habit and to be able to take it, uh, take in that wisdom on a bigger level and also to memorize. And, and a lot of what it comes down to is, are you willing to do it and do you want it bad, badly enough? Because if you want it badly enough, then you'll do it. And if you don't want it badly enough, you won't do it. And, and I, I speak to myself just as much. Um, I'm not just speaking to you guys. None of this comes easily for me. Uh, I study and prepare teachings a lot, but I don't naturally pick up the Bible and read 10 to 12 chapters. That's I don't read it the way that I read a novel. Um, and I often am lazy about memorization. But, you know, in making this the base of, of what I receive for wisdom, I, I recognize that there are just fundamental ways in which I need to change the way I relate to the Bible and to not be afraid to pick it up um, for evening reading, you know, and read seven or eight chapters rather the way I'd read anything else. Okay, any, uh, is, is that good? we good talking about the Bible? I hope that helps, and we, we can kick it around a little bit at the end too. So that's the, that's the base layer. And then the next one is the church. What does it mean to relate to the church as a source of wisdom? And I'm primarily talking to you if you have made TCF your church home. If you believe that this is where God has planted you with these people to live out life together, um, then you know God could have placed you elsewhere, but you believe that he planted you here. I'm primarily talking to you about receiving the church as a source of wisdom. And I think there are four ways that uh, next to the Bible, the church is a crucial source of wisdom that we need to receive in big doses. So four ways. And the first one is uh, lives in the church. So here's what I mean by lives. Our church is a lot like a small town. Anybody grow up in a small town? I'm talking like less than 10,000 people. So our church is a lot like a small town. And in a small town, you know most of the citizens. You know who they are. You know who their families are. And you have opportunities to observe their lives. And you learn a lot from their lives. And what we learn from observation quite often makes a deeper impact than what we hear lectured or, or even spoken of from the pulpit. What we learn from each other's lives goes quite deep. And Paul recognized this. So in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul's saying, look around, look at the lives around you and see the way in which people are, are living out the Christ life in them, the way that people are, are striving to become like Jesus. Paul can't be there to preach to the Philippians every day or every week, but he knows that there are people out there in Philippi who are taking on Jesus' life. And he's saying, look to these people. You can learn a lot from them. And they're, they're where his preaching is pointing to all the time. Um, and so, you know, I think of, in, in this regard, you know, I think of, of James. He's been gone for almost four years now. Uh, But his life still speaks a word to those of us who knew him. And and there are things that we still remember and things that still inspire us about his life. And we have much to receive from one another if we will pay attention. Uh, The things that we can learn from one another's lives, from growing through struggle, seeing the way that people nobly grow through struggle and come to know the Lord in the midst of those struggle and in the midst of suffering and what we learn from them. Um, how, how people in the body employ wisdom, how they serve, um, how they maintain dignity in the midst of uh, circumstances that would threaten to bring that down. We can really learn a lot from each other's lives that we can't get from, from other sources. But we have to be willing to pay attention to those lives and get around those lives. <coughs> Number two is uh, wisdom from the body. And so the first point had to do with simply observing and learning from fellow members in the body. But this point has to do with receiving wisdom that is specifically given to you from people in the body. Words that people have to share with you, words of wisdom. And this isn't always easy. Um, Depending on your level of insecurity, receiving anything from somebody could uh, be seen as a threat or as just kind of a destructive put down. So I'm not saying it's always easy for people. um, But when people ask me what makes TCF distinctive from other churches, um, I usually say that we practice relational discipleship. I say that's what I think really makes us different from other churches. And I would include LCF and ECF in this, um, that they also practice relational discipleship. Uh, I think that's what makes us different. We get involved in each other's lives. We walk out are growing in discipleship to Jesus together. And we talk about it together. And when we're going through difficult times, we're encouraging one another to to relate to Jesus in that and to, to pay attention to his teachings and to grow through his teaching. We get involved in each other's lives. And this isn't just something that we made up as a church. Paul says in Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. In all wisdom, so we teach and we admonish one another in all wisdom. It's natural for us to be able to speak words to one another. Sometimes words of challenge, sometimes words of uh, admonishment. Sometimes saying, "Brother, you're way off here. This, from what I observe in your life, this is way out of kilter, and it's going to hurt you in the end. And I care about you, so I'm I'm bringing this to your attention because this is going to catch up with you later, and it's going to be a problem for you." Paul also says in Ephesians 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So this is not just TCF's DNA. This is the way that God drew it up for the church. This is the way that we are to live together. And it's not telling one another what to do as if we ran one another's lives. That's that's not There there are extremes to it that we want to stay away from. But it's opening up to one another the possibilities that we see for one another. Through encouragement, through rebuke, you know, whatever is an appropriate word at the time. Opening up those possibilities that we see and saying, you know, I see so much more for you in your life than than what's going on right now. And I wanna I wanna encourage you and I wanna help you get there. I I I wanna walk with you and help you get to that place. Uh, I want to encourage you and I want to even challenge you to pursue it. And and I'll walk with you in that pursuit. So that's the second one, wisdom from the body. The third one is local church teaching. And so this speaks to uh, giving the teaching that comes through TCF Your top priority above all other sources of teaching. And again, that's if you consider TCF to be your church home where you've been planted. Um, And that's because Chad and I are that good. (laughs) (laughs) No. Amen to that. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, Bill. (laughs) No, it's because you're in TCF. And we believe that the Holy Spirit speaks particular words to particular church bodies. And the particular word that comes through this church body tends to come through Chad, who is our pastor, and me, who is one of the teachers in the church. And so the teaching in, on Friday nights and at men's meetings, for that reason alone, is why it should be given top priority over other teachings Again, we live in a day where you can access sermons from anywhere, any other church, Um, any of the biggest churches in the country, uh, or just pastors that you like. You can can access all kinds of sermons and, and teachings from pastors, but they are not your pastor. And the Spirit gives particular words to particular bodies through the teachers in the church. And so if you're not making room for what comes out of Teaching in TCF, if you're not making room for that, for intake in your life, then you're missing something that you can't get anywhere else. No matter how good the, the preacher is, no matter how good the sermon is, no matter how many views the sermon's gotten on YouTube, you're missing something because the Spirit is speaking a particular word to this particular body. And sometimes th- you know, that means listening to the sermon again, not just you know maybe listening to it once, but, but listening to it again means paying attention over the long haul to the themes of what God has had to say to TCF as a church. Um, Could you go back a few months and identify some things that have come up again and again through the teaching? Um, When I think about the past couple of months, the thing that I think keeps coming up is small is beautiful. And it's come up in a couple of different teachings and a couple of different contexts outside of teaching. And I think it's a particular word that God has for TCF. The small is beautiful. And we need to lean into that. What does that mean for us then? How do we live that out? How do we work that out? It's something to burrow into and to keep receiving, not just receive it once. And then finally, the fourth one is local church life. As a source of wisdom... And we receive wisdom from the way that we as a body arrange our life together. The way that we arrange our life together as a church informs us and and gives us wisdom. So if we were a cult, we would all live together on a compound, probably, right? We would all live in the same square radius, and we would just all be together together. And we wouldn't have to worry about whether we were intentionally walking out life together because we would see each other all the time. We would always be in each other's lives because geographically we're all in the same place. But we don't live on a compound. In fact, we're, we're spread out not only over other neighborhoods, but even over multiple counties. As, as TCF, we're spread way out. We don't live very close to one another. And so we have to create artificial structures that, are, that promote frequent getting together so that we can be in each other's lives. So we have our Friday meeting. Uh, we have home groups. We have our men's meeting. We have youth meetings. We have the women's retreat. These are structures that we have created so that there is a rhythm to our life together as a body and points of connection that we have on a frequent basis. And those rhythms shape us and inform us in wisdom. Probably, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know where you are in this, but I know that there was a time several years into the church where I was just overwhelmed by the church's schedule. It seemed like there was something most nights of the week that was church-related. There's foundations on Monday night. There was a home group meeting. There was the church meeting. There was men's meeting once a month. There was youth. There were all these things. And it was like, just kind of getting overwhelmed by how many things were church-related. And I saw it as just a slate of obligations that I needed to keep up with, and it was overwhelming, plus then dinner invitations you know, from people to, to get together for dinner or to have people over for dinner. And I would look at the schedule, and I would see all these meetings, and, and I would think, man, there's just nothing left over. There's no time for just family stuff or even just time for myself. And then at some point, I can't tell you what it was, but at some point, the paradigm flipped. And, and it just completely switched in me where I no longer saw everything as a bunch of obligations that I had to do. I began to see the whole thing as just my life. This is my life. And my life largely involves the church. That's just, it's what I'm given to. And so when I go to all these things... It's not because I'm keeping up with all these commitments. It's because this is what my life is. And this is what I enjoy doing. And it's being with these people. And it's it's going for these certain things. My life is rooted in this church. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other things in, in my life. I mean, our kids would do sports now and then and stuff. It doesn't mean that there weren't other things. But I would think, I chose this life. I mean, this is where I felt like God wanted me to be. I chose it. And... And so now it's all opened up for me. This is, this is what I'm a part of. And I began to not feel it as a burden anymore. I was no less busy, but in seeing it as just this is what my life is and gladly entering into it, the paradigm flipped. And so the, the, the meetings and the activities aren't burdens or impositions that keep me from doing what I want. They are the way I get to live out what I believe that God has for me. And I'm not saying that there's never any stress about the church calendar or that I never feel overwhelmed or that there's just a lot going on. I do. But there's a lot less stress and there's a lot more wisdom to receive by entering into this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We, We can talk about that at the end too. So in wrapping up, what I would like you to do, if you are taking notes, if you have a piece of paper or something, or do this at home, what I'd like you to do is to... Draw your own wisdom pyramid. Put in the six slots on the pyramid. And then I would like you to just take an honest look at your life on what it looks like right now as far as your intake. What currently is the default base layer? What gets the most attention? Where is your, where is your attention directed the most often? And then so on. What are some of these other things? Just rearranging these in the way that it most accurately reflects your life right now. And then just you know ask yourself, is this do I want to change this? Uh, does this need to be changed? And if so, what what am I going to need to do in order to make some of these changes? And then next month we'll talk about the other four layers uh, and how they how they fit into this.